Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 27th of November with myself, Andres Vantanar, and my fellow analysts, Harry Morgan and Peter White. In this episode, we discuss NL's plans to spend $226 billion on renewables through to 2030, Tesla's ballooning market capitalization, how China will implement a carbon tax ahead of the USA, and how the EU is seeing a mild revival over the next few years in its solar manufacturing industry. So this week, I think the opener was NL. I read another version of this story today. They quoted the CEO of NL talking about some early years when he was spending in the Middle East and he was building a um, electric to an oil turbine. And he was massively inefficient and he never realised what a stupid idea it was until he, you know, he kind of understood renewables some years later. So there's a bit of colour about that. And then it was virtually our article exactly thereafter with the amounts of money and, uh, uh, and noting that not only has NL promised to spend 190 billion euros, $226 billion in the next 10 years, but reminding us all, Iberdrome has promised to spend 75 billion in the next five. So they are... And, and talking about them having the kind of market cap of an oil major, they are. They're over $100 billion. So that it, it is happening that these companies are becoming the rock stars of the stock market. Uh, but I'm always impressed when I, I listen to um, the results forecast, the results thing at uh, NL. This was the Capital Markets Day. And, and um, just their grasp on things. The way they run the entire business, they don't have a single computer of their own. It's all in the cloud. It's all digitized. It's all in the cloud. And they're closing coal plants like there's no tomorrow. Um, and they, I think they've got none left. I think Iverdrow acquired one when it when it, it, it announced its capital market state. It acquired one the same day, but it, all, um, it, it immediately announced when it was going to close the coal plant by 2022. So these are the, the, the shape of the future. I just think it's amazing that this is Italy's biggest company. It's like Nokia. Everyone was going, what, why is the largest phone maker in the world in Finland? What, you know, what happened to America and China and other places? And, and for a, a while, for a, a brief 20 or 25 years, it was the biggest phone maker in the world. And Italy seems to be the biggest utility in the world. I mean, certainly if it has 90 million customers, only China would have companies bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it in utilities in the US as well. We saw Nextera overtake ExxonMobil in terms of market cap. I think just when you think about where the landscape of the electricity sector is going to be in 10 years time, 20 years time, I mean, half of the oil majors business has come from transport, which will actually be serviced by electricity. The utilities will be just taking over that market cap, basically. So I mean, NL and Iberdrola with their renewables promises, I think they amount to something like the same as the sort of top six oil majors. So it's definitely going to be the utilities that take the sort of super major title rather than the oil majors moving forward. I mean, I think that is those that started 20 years ago. I mean, I think it takes a... I've been in companies that are going through change and, and managing change is really quite hard. So when somebody at the top says, right, we're going to embrace renewables, People at the bottom don't immediately embrace them or don't understand how they work or start looking for another job. And slowly the company changes over a three, four, five year period as it's being forced to embrace it. I think it takes several generations of renewables before the company has got it from top to bottom. Yeah, I think, I think I can... those two have done it. And I think a few others like EDP um, in, in Portugal is another one that's perhaps 10 years into the same process. 
these American utilities. Sort of it could have been either, but it was Duke, yeah. Yeah, they just, when you listen to the stock results of Duke, last one but one, the chairman, this was actually the uh, shareholders meeting, they pushed questions about why aren't you embracing renewables more? Why aren't you buying into energy storage? And she told them off. She told off her shareholders. It's actually good, the, the CEO there. It just said, um, you know, if I was to spend if I was to move us into renewables, I'd have to spend $18 billion on energy storage. And I thought, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Why wouldn't that, that be okay? Wouldn't that be a brilliant idea to help you shift everything to renewables? She spends all her time arguing with regulators about cleaning up coal ash you know, and going to court over it and agreeing finally a settlement of how much they will spend, which is not enough to clean up the coal ash. And they just don't care. And they're, they're having that argument now. And then you go into an, another discussion with a modern utility and they're talking about 100% renewables and how quickly and how much money they can make. It's just a complete mindset change. If you're a company like BP, for example, how do you think it would be best to actually perform this transition quickly and um, actually manage to catch up with the utilities? Do you think it's a case of creating sort of a spin-off business that focuses on renewables and then acquiring that fully further down the line? I think there are lots of ways of doing it. I think you can partner with businesses which you then acquire, which is kind of what you just said, or you can start new businesses at arm's length. You can start a whole division at arm's length. And the reason you start it at arm's length is you have the clean culture straight away and that, that it doesn't collide with and, and get abraded by the, the, the old culture. One of the biggest things that stops a large company changing is that the company, that the, the product groups that are making the most money now keep arguing that, that all the attention, all the money supply should go to them. So if you build a renewals group up close to an oil group, that's going to happen. People are going to want to pillage the, the money supply of the renewables group to go and use it on um, exploration. So you have to keep them apart in some way. You have to guarantee a money supply. But really, renewables is all about experience because the money is a, there's plenty of money out there. If you can just put a, a, a product package together that says, and we've proven that this wind or this solar project will make this much money, can you fund it, please? There are a queue of private equity groups ready to fund that. You don't really need money inside the business to do it. You need experience. You need knowledgeable hands, people who know how to build a project. The more of them you get, the more of them you keep, the more money you can you can throw at the problem. Uh, I think that is that's the problem that the oil companies have. They have lots of their own money, but no idea of how to structure themselves to keep that independence in the renewables group. And what was there was something else about uh, something else in stock market this week, wasn't there? Something you did, Harry. I think you you, know, you, you talked up the the Tesla valuation. I think that's really interesting the way. You know, you get to 400 billion and you kind of go, yeah, if, if in 10 years it was making 20 million cars, that would be fine. And then suddenly it goes to 500 billion and you're kind of going, well, how can we justify the, the other 100, 100 or 120 billion of value? The truth is the stock markets aren't that logical. People need a piece of something. They need a place to rest their money. They need big anchors. Tesla has somehow become that on a purely irrational valuation basis it's it is all in the future 
I think the article's very good. Uh, I think that, that um, you kind of um, got got to it at the bottom, where you, you're saying they've completely revolutionised batteries and may own half the battery market. Or it could be that the solar market is, or that the insurance market is going to, and how Elon Musk says that 40% of our value could be in insurance. And if you looked at the size of the insurance industry and the profitability of it, it makes oil look, look like a sweet shop. Yeah, I think that's the the difficulty that people are having with sort of valuing Tesla at the moment because its growth has almost certainly been due to sort of the hype around it. It's been some element of sort of short squeeze. It's been because Biden's come in with sort of clean energy policy, partially now because it's been including the S&P 500, which has then seen a lot more funds that didn't have money in Tesla pumping money into Tesla. So that that's the reason it's sort of really hopping up at the moment. Um, and then people started to question actually other fundamentals there. And I think while they're not now, I think there is very much the potential for it to happen. So I actually don't think that the 523 billion, I think it is, um, market cap that Tesla has been prescribed is, I think it might even be an underestimate in terms of the future valuation. I think Tesla probably will still continue to rise. I think the fact that they're aiming for this sort of 20 million vehicles alone can sort of start to account for a lot of this value. I mean, that is 35% of the global automotive, automotive industry, which is something we've not seen before. That in itself is... They will smash that target. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I can think, I think and, and that's what I tried to point out in the article was that it's not, for instance, we're seeing with um, the Indian prime minister saying that they're going to go for a massive target in the short term and have no steps to get there for renewables. Elon Musk has been really clear in how he set out the steps to get there in terms of bringing down the cost of the batteries, entering markets where there's no real electric vehicle alternatives like Europe. Uh, yeah, just sort of taking a huge lead in that regard and then sort of building sort of software side of the company off the back of that. And you've got obviously your software, you've got insurance. You've got things like ride hailing, which obviously Elon Musk is a massive fan of. And then obviously you've got this renewable energy business, which realistically is only going to account for one or two percent of the company. It's actually more of a branding thing, I think, than renewable energy. Carbon pricing, Harry. You, you think China will beat the United States to having an active carbon market? Um, I mean, I'd say I don't think I, I think it's almost a sir now, really. I think China has had these sort of regional pilot carbon markets underway for the sort of past four or five years quite under the radar and i think it will be something they almost certainly implement at the start of next year it will be small in terms of how large chinese emissions are but it will cover just its power sector but that if you that covers 10 percent of the globe of global emissions itself so even if there's not a particularly high price of carbon it's a real step towards china actually reaching its net zero by 2060 goal um, I think because of sort of the way that China is governed, coming to this will almost certainly come into play at the start of 2021. I think the US will have quite a lot of bureaucracy that it has to get through to get there. I think Joe Biden electing, as I said in the article, Janet Ellen, uh, ja- Janet Yellen to the head of the Treasury is a massive step towards it because she's obviously a massive proponent of a carbon tax and and is quite sort of light across party lines. So she'll be key to pushing that forward. But that really won't. Like, I'd be really surprised to see a US carbon market come into play before sort of the back end of next year maybe even the start of 2022 yeah but these are both okay yeah so so china uh, operational first but uh, which one will have more of an impact i think 
I think China's, to be honest, it will probably, they will be able to increase it without objection, really. The US has really struggled to put through any sort of carbon pricing plans in the past because of arguments around where the proceeds go from the taxation. So Democrats, for example, have been really keen to pump it into new clean energy policies. And then Republicans have been really clean that if a carbon tax is going to be implemented, that's sort of paid out as a dividend to people in society. So it's that sort of discrepancy and then increasing carbon tax will then face the same debate. The proposal that they're putting through at the moment includes this sort of two thousand dollar dividend to American families for a year, but I think they're going to pl- they're planning to try and get rid of that, but that will then face objection through uh, through the house. So that's going to be something difficult. And yeah, I just think the fact that China has already had the success of these regional pilots, where they've started small and and built it out quite significantly, will be something we see mirrored in their national strategy. I mean, they've been very much they've very much taken experience from the European market and the fact that they're going to include things like a linear redu- linear reduction rate and a uh, market stability reserves. So if they can learn from the mistakes that Europe have made through what really has been quite a successful carbon market, uh, it will be much more influential and it will really help them sort of pave the way as a leader in clean energy, which is what the US is really aiming for as well, but might just be sort of slightly behind due to the past four years it's had really. So it hinges on the fact that carbon prices at the moment are much lower than they need to be. I think the global average is something like 23 it's between 15 and 23 dollars uh, per ton of carbon, uh, which realistically for an oil mate is fine. It's not going to really pressure their um, margins any more than COVID-19 has. Obviously, any more pressure is not great, but um, this sort of low level, if they can sort of tie in agreements that keep these levels low, um, that will actually slow down the energy transition quite significantly. Uh, it needs to be ensured really that the um, sort of emission allowances from these schemes are like are formulated in a way that isn't sort of pandering to uh, sort of massive companies in the markets like the oil majors are at the moment. Because these these three Chinese pilot schemes, they're imaging our article and they're, they're just like five dollars per ton for now. So will China always have a slightly lower price than the USA for, for now? Uh, the channel, channel will definitely have a low price when it starts mm. off, um, and I think that is that is very much a way to sort of avoid any economic shocks. China's obviously a very emission-intensive market at the moment, but it's more of a way of slowly sort of edging towards a global price for carbon. I mean, there's a lot of debate whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, I think there's no way that you can argue that China having a carbon price in its like domestic market is a bad thing. Um, I think if it's a low price and it's sort of lagging behind the rest of the world, then it will have to sort of start increasing its price. So um, I think, yeah, there's the way that China progresses will be really interesting to watch, especially once it announces its 14th five year plan, which hopefully will give us more detail about how that will be performed. A change of pace there. Um, Andres is telling us that Europe is going to have a revival in its solar manufacturing industry. How's that going to happen, Andres? Um, well, before we we previously been aware of like these perovskite companies in Europe, so Oxford Solar and Soltech, and how they were just starting up their pilot lines this year and next year, and then they'd scale up later in the decade. But now, you know, I noticed that there's something a lot more present and a lot more ready for mass scale deployment, which is heterojunction. Um, and Europe has uh, quite a lot of them. Maya Berger, which is this big company in the industry for a long time, which has been selling its equipment to the Chinese. Uh, it's now trying to set up its own manufacturing uh, base in its own right. And it's a Swiss company and it'll be in uh, Germany 
in I think I think it'll be using these abandoned facilities in Germany's Solar Valley, the place that got gutted I think a, a decade ago when the Chinese imports beat everyone out. But anyway, now now what's happening is there's there's something like you said there's something like 25 gigawatts that might come online uh, by 2025 or so, uh, just from companies who think they'll have a technological edge on China with uh, with the heterojunction, which is a very high efficiency uh, form. Uh, and also because Europe's um, demand for solar is, is rising. I think it, it doubled from 8 gigawatts to 16 gigawatts across 2018 to 2019. And this year is a, another good one. So you can take some money on... To, it's very hard to, to throw money at your own um, at your own industry if it's not using it in, in your territory. Whereas if you have a kind of buy Europe strategy somewhere at the heart, as long as there is actually some buying going on in Europe, it makes sense. But so you're right. It, you know, we need to it, it, if um, um, it's going to take off again, it's not going to be to sell outside Europe. It's going to be to support European growth. 